going to spend today we're going to spend some time in the book of Romans I almost said the gospel of Romans in the, the book of Romans which is kind of like at least the first part is similar to a gospel in the way Paul lays things out so if you are using a pew bible and please do have a bible of some sort in front of you turn to page 795 if you're using the pew bible or tap to that if you're using a device and I'd like to invite you to if you're able and willing to stand with me for the reading of God's word something we don't always do but let's do it today if you would Romans chapter 1 Paul a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his human nature, was descended of David and through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last just as it is written the righteous will live by faith for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them for since the creation of the world 
God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. You may be seated. <clears throat> oh God, help. Help me. Help us. Help us to believe in your word. Help us to Rejoice in your word and help us to grow from faith to faith by the power of your word through the working of your spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin a new year and we look at a new text, Maybe it's new to some of you. Maybe it's familiar. I wanted us to look at a text like this because I think it answers, first of all, the, the most important question of all, along with other questions. Many questions that we are frequently thinking about, especially in these current times we're living in. 
But I want you to look again. Look with me at verse 1. And I guess you could say this is the title of the sermon. A few words right there in the end of verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. And here are the words. Set apart for the gospel of God. When the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Romans some few thousand years ago, he had not yet had a chance to visit this believing body in Rome, this Christian body of believers in the gospel in Rome. But you can see just reading through this first chapter, his affection for the people in Rome, his desire that they would know more about this gospel, know more about this Jesus who has saved them and understand how to interpret all of what is going on in this world. And even though Paul, as he he mentions about halfway through this chapter, even though he's been prevented even to the point of his writing this letter to the Romans, It's a long letter, by the way. We don't write letters nowadays, and I don't think many of us write letters this long. 16 chapters. I'm sure it took him some time. But even as he's writing this, he's prevented. But I want you to see what the main theme of this letter is and how it is supposed to be the main theme of our life as Christians. The main theme is really in verses 16 and 17. The main theme of the whole book of Romans. Where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in it, or in the gospel, a righteousness from God. A righteousness which has been given by God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last or from beginning to end. Just as it is written. And he quotes one of the prophets from hundreds of years before he ever lived. And the prophet said these words, The righteous will live by faith. That is the main theme of the book of Romans, that Paul is not ashamed of this gospel. And we see again in verse 1 that he is set apart for the gospel of God. So in those very words, I want us to see that not, not only Paul, but every Christian is actually in the same boat as Paul. We church, we fellow believer, if you're visiting, if you're watching on Facebook, we have been set apart for the gospel of God. We are not apostles like Paul was. And furthermore, as I've said before, there are no apostles like Paul was today. So let's look at verse 1. First of all, who is this man named Paul? 
Paul, who used to be Saul of Tarsus, was a man who was trying to destroy the church. It's good to think about this sometimes. The one who's writing these words was trying to kill people for believing these truths and writing these kinds of words. That's who Paul used to be. For people who claim to be servants of Christ, as he's saying that he is, Paul's mission was originally to destroy the name of Christ from history. He wanted to completely wipe off the the face of the earth, the fact that this person named Jesus Christ had come. And you can find uh, the the history of Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. He was on the, the road to Damascus. And the resurrected Christ himself appeared before Paul and stopped him dead in his tracks. And he said to Paul, Why are you persecuting me, Saul? And I want you to see in those words, why are you persecuting me? In that question, how closely Jesus links himself to his people. Some would say, well, he wasn't persecuting Jesus. He was persecuting his followers. But you see, when the church is persecuted, the true Christian church, when we are persecuted, it is not just a preference war that's going on. It's a a battle, a, a fight, a struggle in the heavenlies, a war that's been going on since the very beginning of time. Since the Garden of Eden, when Satan tempted the first two humans to ever live, Adam and Eve, to disbelieve the Word of God and to believe His Word concerning God. There has been a spiritual war that we have become part of because of of these things and and we're on the wrong side we're on the wrong side of this war apart from becoming a Christian we are also against Christ like Paul was but Paul who was converted at that time when he faced the risen Christ has now been transformed Paul thought he was worshiping God as Someone who was part of the line of Abraham and a Jew. But Jesus revealed to him that if he was truly to be in God's covenant family, he must worship Christ himself. The Messiah sent by God. And notice there in verse 2, this gospel was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Spirit scriptures so this gospel that Paul and all of us by extension have been set apart for is not a new idea this is not a plan B for New Testament believers New Covenant believers and when when Paul writes to us here and says that this was promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures he's not just talking about a few key verses He's actually saying that the very first page of Scripture, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which eventually has what we know as chapter 3 and the fall, when man and woman and humanity, out of that first marriage, 
became sinful. He's writing to tell us that there was a promise right there in the garden from the hand of Moses, from the mind of God. In Genesis 3, chapter 15, you can turn there and check it out. God promised that there was going to be a seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. See, Paul, although he was raised in the school of Gamaliel and and was a true Israelite, a, a true Jew from the tribe of Benjamin, and he claimed at some point in his, in his letter to the Philippians, if you want to boast about being a good Jew, come and talk to me. As, as regarding righteousness or, or moral excellence according to the law, I was at the top of the class. I was a chief Pharisee. I was the sole example beyond all other people of how to be a good godly Jew. But then he goes on to say this, I count all of that similar to, let's just say garbage, similar to garbage compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. And knowing Him as He's telling us about Him here in Romans 1, as the very righteousness of God. You see, Jesus Christ Himself is what this Gospel is all about. We just celebrated Christmas, and while there are various texts we can look at and we can you know, see the, the, the manger scenes and so forth, what we must remember each Christmas and all throughout the year is that Jesus Christ is the Word who became flesh to accomplish a perfect righteousness that none of us can. That's why He was sent. No human being, no Paul, No pastor, no pope, nobody can achieve the righteousness of God through their attempts. And there is no scale to be tipped. So we must tip that notion completely out of our heads. God has no scales. But He reveals something through His Word about who we are and who He is. Or rather, I should put it this way, who He is and who we are in light of the the sinfulness that has now corrupted His image in us. As beautiful and sweet and in some sense even innocent as our children are when they're first born and in their early stages of life. Paul wants us to remember why this gospel, which means good news, is good news. Because there's bad news. We're born guilty. Every single one of us. And this is the message of the whole Bible. Paul is showing us that all of Scripture must be understood through the lens of this gospel. All true worship can only happen through faith in this gospel. In fact, if you turn with me to Romans chapter 12, Paul takes a long, 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 long time through the book of Romans. Basically 11 chapters unfolding for these Romans who he's longing to meet and worship with and fellowship with and grow with and be encouraged with by this gospel. He spends 11 chapters unfolding for them this amazing message which God has been showing throughout history. 
that he's been working out this salvation. And after explaining the gospel in great depth, he says this in Romans chapter 12. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 803. Romans 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, in other words, based on 11 chapters of this teaching, I urge you brothers, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and to approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul is saying that true spiritual worship cannot be created even through services like this one. I want you to think about that. We don't create worship. Worship begins with the one true God having revealed Himself to us and ultimately through His Son and having revealed the person and the work of Jesus Christ and then we who believe in Him become these worshipers of the living God in a covenant with other fellow worshipers of the living God who come together and do our best to represent these things every Sunday on the Lord's Day. And part of the reason we represent it on Sunday is because of whatever other things might have taken place on Sundays. This happens to be the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Amen? We are people that have been also set apart for the gospel of God. And we represent that through the Lord's Supper. We represent that through the day of the week that we come together. And we represent that through seeking to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. This is why it's so important that we are people of the Word. The only way to be transformed by the renewal of our minds is by increasingly taking in the Word of God and allowing that to saturate our thoughts our opinions, our worldviews. Children, how will you understand yourself? How will you look in the mirror and define what it means to be a boy, to be a girl? To be born a boy or a girl? Will you look to other books, to social movements, or will you look to the creator of all things? The one who made man, mankind that is, in his image. And that image is to be displayed through the two and only two genders that exist, male and female, in a non-changeable way. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. How will we and how will the next generation grow in these convictions? Answer, by being a people saturated by God's word 
and holding on to the truths of these words by faith alone. That is the only way that we can live a life of true worship and walk with God by faith. It is through His Word. And Paul is concerned that the Romans, in the midst of a sea of confusion, because let's remember that the wisest man who ever lived said, there's nothing new under the sun. There was a lot of craziness going on in Rome thousands of years ago. Some of these issues which I've just mentioned, so I'll run with that one. Gender issues, sexuality issues, how should we live as single people? How should we conduct ourselves in the use of our bodies, our minds, our intentions? These things have been issues for years. We saw it in Sodom and Gomorrah. We see clearly how God feels about sexuality and that He takes it extremely seriously, very seriously. We must put away this notion that all sin is equal. For example, let's turn back to a little further down in verse 18. All sin is not equal. And some sins God de deals with, has dealt with, and will deal with more seriously. Why is Paul so moved by this gospel, we might ask? The evangelion, the, the gospel, the good news of salvation. Because Paul realizes that even as a Jew who had all of the law and the, the prophets and all the Old Testament scriptures, he was completely spiritually blind to the truth about God as he was rejecting Christ. That's what it, that's what it comes down to, friends. Rejecting Christ is the evidence that you do not know God and you cannot be forgiven until you have changed from being a person who rejects Christ to someone who re receives Him, as we read in John 1. Those who receive Him and believe in His name, they are the children of God. Paul recognized that he was in spiritual bondage and even all the knowledge of those scriptures could not set him free. And so what Paul gives us here in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to the end, is basically a summary of what has gone wrong with the world? And sometimes we feel like saying these, sometimes we do say these things and we ask these questions. What in the world is going on with the world? Have we lost our minds? We see certain things being put into law, other things not being put into law. We see the way we interact sometimes with each other and we think, what is going on? Are we crazy? Well, Paul uses the word foolish a few times. Sin has made us foolish. And one of the things he focuses on here is again this foundational relationship between a man and a woman. And if you notice, just browsing through verses 24 towards the end, you see he uses this word natural versus unnatural. Listen to these words again. Therefore, 
This is verse 24. God gave them over. Remember what the background of this is now. Men in our nature, we, women and men, we reject God. We suppress, as he says in verse 18, we suppress the truth of God in our unrighteousness and, and by our wickedness. What does this look like? It looks like you hearing someone telling you the truth of God's word. We hear this growing up very often, biblical truths, but we choose to justify our rejection of it. Well, I know I know I should wait until I'm married to enter into a certain kind of relationship. But I'm still going to put myself in harm's way and go out with my friends and spend time alone with someone that I'm attracted to. And you have parents and friends telling you, don't do that. It's not wise. Man was made to, to be married to his wife. The wife was, was made to be married to one man. The two shall become one flesh. And if you're not careful, you will have a destructive impact on yourself, on your spouse, on the children that come from that relationship and on generations to come. But we suppress that logic, that God-given wisdom, and find a way to justify our cravings, our sinful cravings. And so this is what we are seeing in the world. Contrary to what some people might say, clearly, some people might say, clearly God, it, it does, He does not have control. He's out of control. This, this world is out of His control. That's what's happening. Now I want to show you another picture. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in their sinful desires. The sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. You see, God tells us what is right. We keep saying, no, I want to do it my way. I once heard a pastor say, Frank Sinatra's song is the theme song of hell. I did it my way. You don't want to live your life by that theme song, I did it my way. Maybe you've heard this at someone's funeral. I'd encourage you not to play it at yours. Please don't play it at mine. We should not want to do it my way. That is why the world is chaos. We should look to see what God's way is. But sometimes we, we get confused and we forget that God judges people, not just as we saw in extreme ways like in Sodom and Gomorrah, but there's a broad, sweeping, general judgment that is ongoing that is what we see. And here's how you can simply define it. Some translations say what this one does. Therefore God gave them over. Others say God gave them up. Fine. In other words, have it your way. Have it your way. And here's what you will get. The degrading of your bodies. And, and a human being is body and mind and soul. We cannot divide ourselves. 
So when the words degrading of our bodies is used there, Paul is fully aware that all of that has been tainted by sin. All of your humanity. That's why we have to be, remember what Romans 12 said, transformed by the renewing of our minds. And look at verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. This is what we do. There are millions of religions, false religions in the world today. And some of them have these little idols. You can see them on, on I forget what it's called, totem poles and the, the, the Indians, the native Indians in America. You can see um, you have the, the Hindus who have their huge Buddhas. You know, some, some people even believe that uh, reincarnation is a thing where you die and you're, you, you come back as some kind of creature. That's why some people hold cows and other animals in high esteem. And even if they were suffering from starvation, they wouldn't eat a creature that could save their life. Because the mind has become degraded from the truth that God has clearly made known. And at the heart of all this, again, is worship. We were made to worship God. But we have exchanged His truth for lies. That's part of our suppression. And look at verse 26. Again, because of this, God gave them over. You see those same words again. And then He says, the women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. This is an ongoing discussion, but in one sense, because mankind is now sinful, you could say that it's natural for some people to be attracted to the same sex. Natural because it's natural to be a sinner, but unnatural according to what God says here, because that's not what we were designed to do. We were not designed to even have those affections in our minds, in our hearts. We weren't made to function that way. In the same way, verse 27, the men abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with relations, with, with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Have you noticed that everything we do with our bodies has a consequence? If I like chocolate too much or sweets, I feel the consequence of eating too much at Christmas or whenever I have it. That is a very mild form of what you could call passive judgment. God is very serious. And we, we tend to remove Him from a lot of these little situations. But the more we think about Him as being all present and all involved in our lives, the more serious we see how this is. God, in His passive judgment, has basically given us over to what we wanted and it wasn't Him. 
And at the center of all these wrong desires is self. Ourself, the greatest idol. The reason that we reject God is because we want to essentially worship our own lifestyle or our own selves. But God sometimes turns us over to that and we have to face the penalty for it. And notice that you can go through the entire Bible. I would say you could go through the whole Bible and you know there's, this, there's a word that we often use that you won't find in it. It's this word called mistakes. You notice how we, we often talk about sin or ungodliness with words like mistakes? Everyone makes mistakes. That's true. Our daughter, if she doesn't tie her shoes properly or just decides to run and look backwards, falls over. That's a mistake. But a lot of the time, our loved ones, our friends, are paying the penalty of decisions that they made in their life and us as well. Not because of mistakes, but because of willful rebellion against the word of God. And that is why the world is the way that it is. And even being a good religious Jew like Saul was, who we now know as Paul, couldn't set him free from his greatest need. What was that greatest need? Let your eyes run back up to Romans 1 verse 17 again. Why is Paul saying he's not ashamed of the gospel? Well, in verse 16 he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. I want you to note that first. It's not the the power of God for salvation of people who come to church services or even learn the words of our hymnals. I'm literally preaching to the choir. I'm preaching to the preacher, if you understand what I'm saying. We have to remember these things. It is the power of those who believe. Those of us who hear these truths and turn from not trusting to people who are trusting in this gospel. This good news. And the heart of the the heart of the gospel is connected to the issue which is our greatest need, which is this, righteousness. We have become unrighteous. That is why verse 18 says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven in various different ways against all unrighteousness or godlessness. But verse 17 tells us that in the gospel, in the gospel, there is a righteousness which God has graciously given us. It's revealed, and it's a righteousness that comes by faith from first to last. Just as as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So what is the gospel? Imagine you're walking down the street, and a stranger stops you and says, "I, I just saw you coming from this church from a church service. Or I, I, I remember that you are a person that goes to church. 
What is this gospel? I want you to think how you're going to start answering that. Think about it. And remember this. The gospel, which means good news, is good news in light of this bad news that Paul shows in verses 18 through 31. The bad news is that because of sin, we are all unrighteous. As Paul goes on to say in chapter 3, verse 10, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Even sometimes we may see someone that appears to be seeking God, but a lot of times what people are doing is seeking His benefits. We seek God's benefits. We want to rub the lamp like He's a genie, like that movie Aladdin. Just give me my three wishes and I'll be a good person. No, but Paul is saying we don't even genuinely seek for God. Remember? We suppress the truth of God by nature now. He continues. And by the way, he's quoting from Psalm 14. You can go back to Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 and find these very words. Anytime we read our Bibles and see these little columns that have quotations, you can find with the tiny letters there, you can go back to the reference. And you can see that all Scripture is interpreting itself. Paul is simply saying, this is what God's been telling us. Even through the psalmist. There's no one righteous. Not even one. There's no one who understands God. No one seeks for God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good. Not even one. In the sense that the original purpose for which we were made was to know and worship God, that, that has been destroyed or completely corrupted at least by sin. And that is what he means by worthless there. And then he says there's no one who even does good. Maybe you're listening to this and you think, well listen, I'm not Putin. I'm not Hitler. I'm not even the man over the fence. I'm definitely better than that person. I'm good. And maybe we use language like this. Well, it's not that so-and-so is a bad person, really. They're really a good person. It's just that, fill in the blank. We all know what I'm talking about. Remember once Jesus was walking and some, someone came up to him and said, Good teacher! Good teacher. And Jesus paused the, ma the man and said, oh, Why do you call me good? Uh, why do you call me good? Only God is good. You know, God is good all the time. Amen. And all the time? God's good. And, and we are not. That's our greatest problem. There is no one righteous. But Paul says, in this gospel, which has to do with the, the conception in the Virgin Mary's womb, and the birth, and the life, and the death, death and resurrection, and ascension, and second coming of Jesus Christ. In this gospel, there is a righteousness that has been achieved 
by God given as a gift that is received by faith. Is that not good news? That is the greatest news. And this is what Paul and the entire Christian church throughout the world has been set apart for. We have one mission, really. It is the proclamation of this gospel. Some of us are doctors. Some of us are nurses. Some of us are teachers. Some of us are vets. Some of us are retired. But still have a lot of work, I know. <laughs> Some of us are farmers. Some of us are housewives, are homemakers. Don't hate the terms. You know what I'm trying to say. And that's an amazing task. Praise God for people who do all those different things. But all of that collectively is not our primary task as a Christian and as the church. We have been set apart for the gospel of God. When Paul states his identity and purpose in verse number 1 of Romans chapter 1, he wants us to see that this gospel is about God. And there's a lot of social gospels throughout the ages that have been put out there and have diluted the true gospel. The gospel is not about me or you or a movement. The only movement that the gospel is about is the movement of God the Father sending His Son to accomplish this righteousness which we could not so that whosoever believes in Him will have everlasting life. As we enter this new year, church, fellow believer, let us be like Paul who was so set apart for the gospel even though he was a tent maker. Paul had other jobs too, you see. But he was set apart for the gospel. Let us ask God to give us the wisdom to know how we can use our talents and our tasks and our time and our togetherness as a church, as a local church. Let us ask God for the wisdom to know how we can be set apart for the gospel of God in a similar way. I'll just read these words in closing from Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But now, a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. See, forgiveness and salvation, Paul always connects it with faith, those who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God, that is God the Father, presented Him, Christ Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. 
He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is the righteousness Paul is speaking of. No animal ever atoned for sin in the Old Testament. Not a single one of all those millions of poor innocent creatures that died. All of them were representing various things about what Christ was going to do. Think about it. We had to have Christ come as one of us to achieve what we ourselves cannot. Not just so that he could sympathize with us in our weakness, but so that he could overcome where we fall short of God's glory. And not only did he live a sinless life, but he died on the cross as an atonement. So God here in in verse 25, we're told that what was happening through those animal sacrifices was a patience, a forbearance until Christ came. And then something happened that will never happen again. Christ drank the cup of God's wrath on Calvary's cross. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus, the night before he was crucified, went to pray. And he asked the Father, if there's any other way other than me having to face this cross and ultimately your wrath, if there's any other way, let this cup of wrath, which is a word for divine hatred, a divine displeasure, an active anger towards something. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And the silence was a no. In other words, this is the only way that we can save sinners. So Christ takes himself as the perfect righteous one, the only person who doesn't fit into these words that there's no one righteous. Well, he's the one that is righteous. Having lived a perfect, sinless life allows himself to be nailed to a tree and cries out on that tree, Why have you forsaken me? The only one who has the right to truly ask those words. And the answer, again, is found in a, well, many songs, but in a modern hymn that says, I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted because you were condemned. I'm alive and well, and your spirit is within me because you died and rose again. And so three days later, having received the punishment of our sins, the penalty of our sins, being treated as if he himself were guilty of all the sins that you and I and whoever else believes will ever commit. Being treated as if he committed our sins. He dies. He dies after saying those words, it is finished, paid in full. And three days later, to prove it is finished, to prove that the debt has been paid, the Father raises him 
from the grave bodily and spiritually and then he ascends 40 days later from where he now reigns in glory and will return at any moment for those who believe this is the gospel this is what makes us a church by being believers in this gospel and it is for this gospel that we are set apart for the gospel of God. Amen, church? Amen. Let us make this year a year where we seek to know God more through His Word, see God more through His Word, and make God known in our workplaces, in our homes, and all of our other walks of life. He will do it if we ask Him to help us be faithful. He is faithful to continually fulfill His mission through us. Let us go to him now in prayer. Father, we, we ask your forgiveness, first of all. Sometimes we have a low view of this gospel. We have a diminished view of just how amazing this good news is. And even in a thousand sermons and songs and services, we will never, ever fully wrap our minds and our hearts around the, the glory of this gospel. In fact, you've made it known that throughout eternity, we will praise you for this gospel, for the person and the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. So we praise you for what you've accomplished through him. And we plead with you, not just for forgiveness for, for the times that we don't let this burn in our hearts and, and create us to, 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 to live for you more, more faithfully, but we plead with you to, to strengthen us in the faith. Equip us by your word and by your spirit to, to live faithfully in these uncertain times. Help us to always be ready to give an account for this gospel we believe in and to, to win people to Christ with conviction and kindness, with love and sincerity, and to have a boldness as we seek to just simply say, God has said it in His Word, that is enough. Help us to learn more this year the meaning of your word being sufficient for us as a church, for us as individual believers, for someone who's tuning in, perhaps for the first time, or maybe for the first time hearing this gospel or hearing something new about this gospel who has not yet even believed in this gospel. We ask now that you, Holy Spirit, would not just reveal the the beauty of who Christ is and what He's done, but would draw someone to yourself, even now. Would use your word to bring about a new birth in this new year and help us to recommit ourselves as a church to being set apart for the gospel of God. We entrust ourselves to you in these things. 
And we ask you now to keep us worshiping throughout the rest of this day and beyond. For you are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.